that uh, focused on the matter of the heart, or the heart of the matter, uh, I should say. Um, hey, guys, listen. God's doing some neat stuff around here. And to God be the glory. I, um, I am so very grateful for the ministry that um, our ladies have. I'm so grateful that yesterday about 95 of our ladies came into this auditorium. And, and um, I believe with all of my heart and from the testimonies that I've heard and people that I've talked to that were here that there's 95 ladies that are closer to God today than they were yesterday. They're walking closer with him. They're experiencing him more. They're being used by him more. Their relationship with him is it has a greater reality in their life. Praise the Lord for that. And I, Tracy, thank you for your leadership in the ladies' ministry, and thank you for your sacrifice. I thank Liz Dixon for her willingness to teach. Many, many worked very hard to put that together. And for me to hear about what God was doing in their midst um, just fills me up. And to, and to have that follow the 18 to 25 experience in Atlanta when we went to the Passion Conference and over 30 of our young people who experienced God in a most miraculous way in their lives just radically, radically changed. And I praise God for that. And I'm glad that I can get up here on a Sunday morning and praise God for transformed lives. That's what it's about. Yesterday we gathered in the auditorium and to remember a dear, dear brother of Christ who went home to be with the Lord last Sunday, Dave McIntyre, sat right here on the second row every Sunday that he could be here. His life embodied, I think, our message today. For two years, Dave was in great pain and had no energy, and yet, he was one of the most joy-filled people that I knew. And I believe, I know, that the reason why is because he dedicated his life to bringing glory to God. That's what drove him. Just want to bring God glory. Just want to bring God glory. Dale, where can I share my testimony? I want to tell my story. What ministry needs, needs somebody to speak? I want to go. Do you know somebody outside of our church? I want to go speak. I want to share my testimony. I want to share my story, what God has done in my life. And I'm so very, very grateful for that. Last Sunday night in our youth ministry, two teenagers trusted in Jesus to be their Savior. And a third rededicated his life to the Lord. Praise God for that. When I think about Dave, the flowers are here from yesterday's memorial service. When I think about Dave, I think about one verse in Scripture. It's what Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew when he told us, Let your light so shine before men so that they may see your good works, so that they may glorify the Father which is in heaven. It was a couple of months ago I preached a message on letting your light shine and how so often, most often, our light shines the brightest in the midst of suffering. And I remember after the message coming down off the platform and embracing Dave, who was sitting right there on the second row, as he always was, and whispering in his ear, thank you for letting your light shine so brightly. And his comment to me was, after all he has done for me, it's the least 
that I can do. Giving God glory. The mind of God. The mind of God. Bringing him glory. It's what Dave's life embodied. This message um, has to do with when we say, hey, it's not about you, it's about him. It's not about us, it's about him. That's what this message is about. This message is about when you've heard me say over and over and over again, in Christ, you can experience joy in the midst of difficult circumstances. That's what this message is about. It's about aligning our hearts with God's heart. What is God's heart? If we're going to align our heart with his, then we must know what his heart is. And if I ask the question this morning of each person in this auditorium, what is God's heart? What do you think God's heart is? I'm sure that we would get a, a lot of great, great answers about his omnipresence and his omniscience and his um, sovereignty, his, his providence, his grace, his forgiveness, his love. I'm sure we would get all kind of answers, but I want you to know more than anything else what the heart of God is. More than all of those things, what is the heart of God? What is the, what is the, the defining characteristic? This is who God is. Well, it might surprise you to know that God created the universe in order that he might be worshipped. God created the universe in order that he might receive glory, in order that he might receive worship. That's why. That's the reason. And a lot of people struggle with that. I have no doubt that there are people in this room who struggle with that idea that he created you for the purpose of bringing him glory and worshiping him. And if that's you this morning, I want you to know you, you're not alone. There's a lot of people. There are people who have rejected the faith, that have walked away from the faith because they can't reconcile in their mind this idea of a God that is so self-exalting. And that's what he is. I tell you boldly this morning, our God is a self-exalting God. C.S. Lewis, before he came to know Christ, as a young man, he came to know Christ. But before that, he wrote these words. He complained that God's demand to be praised sounded to him like a vain woman who wants compliments. And it kept him from trusting in Christ for the longest time of his life. There's a professor at the University of Kentucky at Lexington. His name is Eric Reese, and he authored a book in which he wrote these words. I reject Jesus because only an egomaniac would demand that we love him more than we love our parents and our children. And Jesus said, hey, if you don't love me more than you love your mom and your dad and your brother, you can't be my follower. You're not worthy of me. That's what Jesus said. 
Eric Reese comments on that. And, and it's that statement that causes him to reject Jesus because he can't reconcile in his mind a God who, is, is, who desires that kind of worship and that kind of praise. Michael Prost, a column, columnist with the London Financial Times, turned away from God because, quote, here's what he said, tyrants puffed up with pride are those who crave adulation. Brad Pitt, you've heard of him, walked away from the faith because in his words, God says, you have to say that I'm the best, and that seemed to me to be all about ego. And so he walked away from the faith. That great theologian, Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> I'm just going to read, this is a, 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 an excerpt from a, an interview that, that she had. Oprah Winfrey walked away from the Orthodox Christianity when she was about 27 years old because of the biblical teaching that God is jealous for his glory in our lives. He, she said, he demands that he and no one else get our highest allegiance and affection, and that doesn't sound like love to me. The verse of Scripture that was used that caused her to to walk away from faith was Exodus 34, 14, where God himself says, you shall worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Now, I want you to, to, to think about that. Think about your relationship with God. Think about your, 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 your greatest desire, where your greatest affections lie. Think about it in the context of, uh, of, of the marriage where if your spouse had a greater affection for someone else, how you would be jealous, that would cause you to be jealous. God says the same thing to us. He says in his word, I am a jealous God. And if you have an affection that's greater for someone else or something else, then I'm jealous about that. I want to be your greatest treasure, God says to us. And I want to possess your greatest affection. And I believe we all struggle somewhat with the reality that God demands to be our greatest treasure. I think we all struggle with that to some level, on some level to some degree. We think, we understand that our world should revolve around him. And that he should be involved in every area of our life. And that we should be God-centered. It's a calling. We talk about it here a lot. Being God-centered. Not, not categorizing God, but allowing him to be a part of every single area of your life. So we, we are to be God-centered. But is God God-centered? Is God to be God-centered? The reality is the most God-centered person in the universe is God. And we struggle with that. Most of us agree that's good that we're God-centered, but we're just not comfortable with the thought of God being God-centered. We think we should be Christ-exalting, but Christ shouldn't be Christ-exalting. I want to ask you, when are you most drawn to God? 
At what kinds of times in your life do you spend the most time with him? When would you say in your life he is your greatest treasure? Why and when do you spend the most time praying? When do you feel closest to him? When do you call out to him? When do you make time for him? And the point, I think, is if it's, a, if it's most often when you're in a time of need, then, then you don't have a view of God as a God who is God-centered. Your view of God is God is man-centered. Or maybe I should say he's me-centered. When my view of God is that he's me-centered, then I have a distorted and a wrong view of God because that's not his heart. And I can't align my heart with his if I don't understand what his heart is. Now listen, this is what God's Word says. And if I can't show you from God's Word that this is God's heart, then you need not believe it. And you certainly need not apply it in your life. And so what does the Scripture have to say about this self-exalting God? Well, I'm going to give you a bunch of Scripture here. um, I'd encourage you to jot these down because I would love for you to spend some time this week just looking at some of these Scriptures. God creates... For his glory, Isaiah 43, verses 6 and 7. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who was called by my name, who I created for my glory, God says. God creates for his glory. God chose the people of Israel for his glory, Jeremiah 13, 11. I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah Judah, cling to me, says the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and that they might be for my glory, Jeremiah 13, 11. God is faithful to his people and he saves saves them from slavery in Egypt for his glory. Psalm 106, verses 7 and 8. Our fathers rebelled against the Most High at the Red Sea, yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his power and for his glory. God restrains his anger during the exile in Babylon for his glory. Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not share with another. Self-exalting. The God that we serve and love and worship. God sends his Son at the end of the age, for his glory, 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 9 and 10. He comes on that day to be glorified, to be glorified in his saints, and to be marveled at in all who have believed. In all of history, from the beginning, really I could say from before 
the beginning. Until that last day, until the very end, God calls for his people to worship him and to praise him and to give him glory. In all of history, from beginning to end, he has this one ultimate goal, that his name be glorified. The aim of God and all that he does is most ultimately the praise of his glory. I I, want to give you three uh, scriptures that kind of point toward from the the beginning to the end and and, and the middle. In the beginning, Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, before the foundation of the earth, God determined that he would know you, love you, call you, redeem you, and adopt you as son. It says in Ephesians 1, adopt you as his children for the praise of his glory. He saved you for his glory. The ending, John chapter 17 and verse 24, Jesus is praying in the garden and he says, Father, I desire that they also, speaking of you, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, the glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundations of the world. When all is said and done, when our time here is over, in that, in that new heaven, in that new earth, we will behold him. We will see him in all of his glory. And in seeing him, we are transformed in such a way, in viewing his glory, in seeing his glory, we are transformed in such a way. The Bible says we will be changed. We will be like him. We will be transformed in such a way that we can fully understand and enjoy his glory infinitely. Enjoy his glory. Transformed to be the people that he has called us to be. The beginning and even the end. And in the middle of the beginning and the end is God's greatest glory, which is the cross of Jesus Christ. This really is the key to everything. It's where God in human flesh gave himself for the debt that that I owed, died for me so that I might be forgiven, enter into a relationship with him, and he did this for his glory. We say Jesus died for me, but even, and which is absolutely true, but even more so, Jesus died for the glory of the Father. Jesus died for the Father, his heavenly Father, which which means that now when we come to him for mercy and we cry out to him for forgiveness of our sins, we, we do that for his glory. We do that for his namesake. Psalm chapter 25 and verse 11, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. And this promise from 1 John chapter 2 and verse 12. Your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. There's no question about that the Bible from beginning to end, 
we see a God, the God of the universe, the creator of the world, who is a self-exalting God. So I learned a new word, megalomaniac. You ever heard of that word? Megalomaniac. It's a mental illness marked by delusions of greatness and power and wealth. Is God a megalomaniac? I mean, is a God that so self-exalting and demands our worship and demands our praise? Here's the takeaway. The way... This is God's blueprint. This is God's plan. This is the way God has wired us. That our greatest joy, our experience, our, 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 our joyful experience, our greatest joy, regardless of circumstances, is experienced when Christ is our greatest treasure to the degree that we can't help but praise him and worship him and bring glory to his name. Listen, here's what I'm saying. Our greatest joy, the deepest sense of joy that we can have is when we make him our greatest treasure and we can't help. It's not a disciplined thing so much. We can't help it. He's our greatest treasure and because he's our greatest treasure, we find ourselves praising him and worshiping him and bringing his name glory. God relentlessly demands worship because in doing so, we experience our greatest joy. So, C.S. Lewis, before he came to know Christ as Savior remembers saying that God's demand to be praised sounded like a vain woman who wants compliments. And then after coming to know Christ as Savior and in studying His Word, he authored a book called The Reflection of the Psalms. There's a couple of paragraphs in that book I want to read to you. Allow me to do that, if you will, because it really capsulizes this idea the self-exalting God and why God is that way. Here's what C.S. Lewis wrote. The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything else, had strangely escaped me. I thought of praise in terms of compliments or approval or honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows in praise. The world rings of praise. Lovers praising their lovers, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, praise of wine, of actors, of horses, of colleges, of countries, historical persons, praise of children, praise of flowers, praise of mountains, praise of rare stamps, even sometimes praise of politicians and scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time the most balanced minds praised the most, while cranks and misfits and malcontents praised the least. 
I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, spontaneously praise whatever they value, they also spontaneously urge others to join them. Saying stuff like, isn't she lovely? Wasn't that glorious? Don't you think that's magnificent? And the psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. We we make God our greatest treasure and spontaneously we break out in praise and worship of him. He goes on and he says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. Now consider what that means in the, in the context of your spiritual journey, of your life experience. That, that there is this, this innate thing within us that compels us to praise God and worship God when we make God our greatest treasure. And in worshiping God, we experience the deepest and most real joy that we can experience regardless of circumstances. While it was a very, very sad yet celebratory occasion that we had Friday in remembering the life of Dave McIntyre, in reading this comment by C.S. Lewis and thinking about Dave's life, it made so much sense to me. A guy who had every reason to be a grump, who had every reason to be angry at God. He could have justified that. A guy who had more questions than answers, and the number one question was why? Why? And yet, it was so obvious that his most valued treasure was God. And the result of that was worship and praise and this, this, this innate, this compulsion to bring him glory. Where, when can I tell other people my story? Because that's, that's what you do when you praise things whether it's, it's your family or, or, or whether it's your football team or, 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 or a piece of art or your car, whatever it is. Man, you, you want to tell people about it. It's just an aid. It's, it's, you don't have to be disciplined to do that. That's why God wants to be worshipped. He wants to be our greatest treasure. And when he's our greatest treasure, we spontaneously break out in worship of him and praise of him and it's in that worship and praise that we experience his deepest joy 
Is he an egomaniac? God is the only being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is not because of a needy ego. He doesn't want our praise because he needs our praise. He doesn't want our praise because, because of some egotistical thing. But for him, he's the only one in the universe that he desires praise because for him, it's an act of giving. It's when we experience our deepest joy. The reason God seeks our praise is not because he won't be fully God until he gets it. But it's because we won't be happy until we give it. This is his plan. This is his blueprint. From the beginning to the end, from Genesis to Revelation, from before the world was created till that last day, he demands our worship. And he demands that so that he can give. That's not arrogance. That's grace. That's not, that's not egomania. That's love. And that's the kind of God that we serve. No wonder the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Making God's glory my priority in life influences every decision that I make. I mean, I could, I could preface every decision that I make by what brings God the most glory. And if that's my heart and that's my desire, what's going to bring God the most glory with my day-to-day? -day? If I turn left or right, what brings God the most glory? That's what I want. That's what I want. And when that is my heart, when he is my greatest treasure, when that is my heart, then I experience him in an intimate level that goes deep, deep, deep and his joy, and his love, and his involvement in my life. It's how I do that. He's my greatest treasure. It's the way he has set it up. Let me invite you to stand. I want to pray for us. How great thou art, O Lord my God. Father, I pray for each and every individual here that that, that that would be what we're drawn to, that that would be our heart, that we would align our heart with you and have this desire within us what, in whatever we eat, in whatever we drink, in whatever we do to bring you glory. That is what should drive our lives, to bring you glory to bring you praise, to worship you. We thank you that you had us, on mind, had us on your mind before the foundation of the world. We thank you for your death on the cross that allows us to come boldly to your throne of grace, experience intimacy and relationship with you. 
And Lord, we look forward to the day when we will see your glory and it will transform us so that we might experience your joy for eternity. Transform our lives. Align our heart with yours. For your glory is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.